jumping in to meet the plebs. It's great to be back. Um, second time on the live show, so super excited, of course. Um, and I couldn't have a better guest, author, lawyer, contributor here at Bitcoin Magazine, and now a uh, contributor late liaison for the op-ed team. So uh, you'll, you'll all be seeing more of him. Mark Mariah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Casey. I'm looking forward to our conversation. <clears throat> Yeah, me too. Um, I've had some excellent conversations with Mark already, both in person and online. Um, like Alex said, he's got such a incredible background that there's much to speak about. So uh, I guess let's jump right into it, Mark. Um, you have an interesting sort of story about getting into Bitcoin uh, that sort of involves your background. Do you want to just uh, tell us about it and, and how you got involved? Absolutely. So um, I was a practicing lawyer, and I was actually a banking lawyer, and then I was a securities litigator. Uh, so I understood sort of the banking system and the securities sort of uh, environment that we're in in the United States, at least, uh, from the inside. And so I was probably working for all the cantillionaires that we talk about. Um, but then in 2008, something obviously happened that we all got our attention, which was the financial crisis. And I knew something was broken, and I really lost confidence in the banking system after that. And as I think I have said to you in our conversations before, I didn't really trust the banking system. I mean, I had my sisters who were very trusting of the government and the system, and I'd go, hey, I don't really trust the banking system. And for the longest time, I really didn't know where to go. And I knew I didn't trust the banking system. And for whatever reasons, I didn't really get, I got involved with Bitcoin in terms of knowing about it maybe as early as 2012, but didn't see it as a solution to some of our problems until 2020, like a lot of other people. So it's been, you know, and, and when I got in, it was in March, uh, bought a little bit in March. I actually had a Coinbase account because there was a uh, young lawyer who had I've written a couple of books. One of those books is called Rainmaking Made Simple. And he reached out to me and he called himself a Bitcoin lawyer. Now, this is in 2014, Casey. So not exactly a household word. There weren't any large law firms that were trying to hire people. And he reached out to me. He liked the book. I met with him. He helped me set up a Coinbase account, and then inexplicably, I didn't fund it until March of 2020, but it was at least on the radar. But the funny part of the story, as I just said, is I didn't trust the banking system, but I didn't see Bitcoin as a solution until really 2020. Yeah, um, I mean, hindsight, but I, I am curious, what were some of the things that you found in the banking system that you didn't trust or that you saw as problems that really solution presented a, a, or a Bitcoin, it was presented as a solution to? Well, there, there's a lot of them and some of them are more insiders. Uh, so for example, most people don't know this, the US treasury market, they rehypothecate. That just means that it sits on more than one bank's balance sheet. Uh, those treasuries sit on more than one balance sheet, which really means the system's way more fragile than anyone realizes but as long as nobody heads for the exits on those treasuries or needs to claim them as collateral, no problem. Um, it's the most heavily regulated industry. When I went to law school in the early 80s, it was probably then and still is the most heavily regulated industry. 
there's a lot of middlemen. They don't create any value. I had taken over my dad's portfolio. He had a pretty traditional portfolio. And I realized that the people that he was using to manage his money, he was good at making money. He wasn't very good at investing it. So he handed it off to an expert. And I realized that there were just 12B1 fees in uh, mutual funds. Most people don't know. Those are basically a hidden fee that people collect against their customers. And almost nobody knows they're even having that taken out against them. So there's a lot of middlemen. There's a lot of uh, excess regulation. That would be my perception. I'm sure it isn't from the perspective of the government. And a profoundly unfair system, I think, as Ross Stevens said in one of the interviews he did, in, I guess it was 2021, last year with Michael Saylor. So you could see all that as the insider. So there were a number of them. If it, Literally, I would say, and I think you and I were talking about this, if everybody understood how bad the banking system was, they'd, they'd want to, they, they'd be having a revolution by morning, to quote Henry Ford. And it's literally 200 times worse than most people can imagine, which most people don't want bad news. They're already trying to get through their day as best they can, and it's it's almost overwhelming as it is. So, I'll I'll pause there and see see if you if that gives you enough insight. I could keep going on and on about that one. You probably do a whole podcast on that one. No, I'm sure. I mean, uh, the fiat system and all its uh, you know troubles. Uh, I mean, it sounds like what you're describing is basically the wealth of the nation being plundered underneath everyone's noses, right? And uh, I mean, like you said, we could probably go on all day about the different problems in that system. Well, and I, and I do want to make this point, and I think there are some writers, Bitcoin Magazine writers who've made this point, as well as others. Mm-hmm. The It's amazing that you can essentially commit theft in plain sight, you know, things like inflation. Um, I don't think most people realize that when you put your money in a bank account, it's not your money anymore. It's actually on the bank's balance sheet. And as people in Cyprus found out, as people all over the world have found out, when you go to collect that, your, what you think of as your money, you may learn it's not your money. And I hope that doesn't happen here, but I knew enough about the system to know that's the case. And I don't think that's widely understood or widely known. No, certainly. I think uh, I think at large that sort of system is taken for granted here in the uh, the West. So, but um, yeah, moving on. I guess Mark, um, you have had you know tons of experience in your life in various areas, various industries. I'm curious, you know, outside of the sort of technical business side of things, what life lessons you would describe that you've sort of extracted from Bitcoin. Right. And, and they're still coming by the day, right, Casey? I mean, you know, as, as we've said, um, we don't change Bitcoin. Bitcoin changes us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think there's ever been a technology in my lifetime that is more transformational than Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And because money is, the, is one half of every transaction in the economy, it's, it's hard to overstate how important that is. And I think in one of the articles that I wrote for Bitcoin Magazine, I actually called it a once in a species invention or discovery. And I'm not sure, I'd actually love to debate that sometime with our fellow contributors. Is it an invention or is it a discovery? Because of the whole notion of absolute scarcity, I I still think we're trying trying to grasp what that means. And And I feel like we as a species are still uncovering 
what that means. And there's some great writers. I mean, I, we could go on and on about that. Um, but it's but what I was shocked most about is that Bitcoin really humbled me because in spite of my being a lawyer in the banking system, in spite of my knowing that the system was broken, I really don't feel like I learned what money was until I actually went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, which was really November of 2020, when I really went all in with a whole lot more funds, which then motivated me obviously to learn about what the heck I had just done. And it, it's just impossible until you've done enough homework, you hear people talking in superlatives, people call it truth. All of those are true and they're still not gonna fully describe what we're talking about. The other thing that I've noticed is, and I use this a lot when I'm talking to sort of the boomers of the world and even younger folks, is the K-graph. Thank you or hat tip to Croesus, uh, who did an article, I think, in Bitcoin Magazine, and he showed that basically Bitcoin is doing this going up and the dollar's doing this. Why would we save any of our life force or our life energy in something that is such a poor preserver of our life energy and our life force. And, you know, I could go on and on, but those are, those are a few of them that really, I think, um, strike me as amazing. The other thing I want to say, though, is too, having been a business owner for quite a number of years, cash, and you've heard Ray Dalio call it trash, but it's a liability. So because of that K-graph, any cash I have, even though it's listed as an asset on my balance sheet, it's not an asset on my balance sheet, whereas Bitcoin is, and it gives us all an alternative that is, if you understand it, it's a, it's, it actually gives me a lot of hope and a lot of confidence in, in, um, uh, in the future. No, definitely. I think I totally understand that. And as you were describing, it is a kind of a debate on whether we discovered this or invented this. But either way, I think sort of what you were hitting on also was it's hard to really understand what money is until we have another representation of money that's so much more conducive to what we can understand. And then we look at the fiat system and we're like, oh, this is so much more complicated than it needs to be. And as we described earlier, it extracts value out of the system in ways that aren't necessary. Um, and yeah, I think it takes that sort of perfect representation or maybe not perfect, but another representation to really compare. I think that's exactly right. And I think people look at us like we've got four eyeballs, right? I mean, we've all now been to family gatherings where it's like, can we, or friends, can we talk about something other than Bitcoin, right? But mm -hmm. when you realize just how powerful it is and how many problems it starts to solve in the system, it really, it leaves me encouraged. And at the same time, it is amazing. We don't teach in school two very important topics that, in my opinion, are the most important things you can teach a human being in modern society. The first is actually more important than money, and that's health. Okay. And the mm -hmm. second is wealth or, the, or money. And we don't teach that at age four, five, six, all the way through college. When we do teach people in college about money or economics, we teach them Keynesian economics, which to me is really teaching them propaganda about money. And as you said, until you actually understand that there's something that's so many standard deviations above what we thought was possible, we can't appreciate that whatever we thought about money, we can throw out the window because it's 
it's a poor representation of what's possible. Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, I'm curious. You mentioned uh, the two things that you would really like to see us, you know, teach in school is is health and wealth. I am curious, and you always talk about health. Both uh, you've talked about it on person, in person, on Twitter, uh, in Telegram. So to Alex, <laughs> yeah, to, to everyone. So yeah. I am very curious, Mark, why you um, you know consider health so important and, and even above teaching about wealth. Well, I mean, honestly, I had parents who had plenty of wealth and they didn't have health in their last five, six, seven, eight years of their life. My dad had something called PSP, which is sort of a form of Parkinson's. Um, and my mom had um, <clears throat> something called COPD, which is emphysema. Sorry to hear that. And they would have traded probably their entire wealth for health. And I also, starting in 2007, had a work colleague who was diagnosed with some metastatic prostate cancer, which led me down the path of learning about the connection between food, soil, and health. And so I've been a student of that far longer than Bitcoin. And I would absolutely love to see it taught in fourth, you know, four to four-year-olds and, and older because when you don't have your health, and I watched my parents, and I spent a lot of time with them. I was privileged to be able to do that. I don't care how much money you got. It doesn't really matter. And the other thing about Bitcoiners in particular, and the reason I'm excited about having them as an audience for this kind of thing, as Bitcoiners, we're more likely to accept responsibility for our wealth, possession of our own keys, as a result, I think there's a likelihood that they're more likely to appreciate accepting responsibility for their own health. So rather than relying on the government, me listening to my governor or the president is never going to help me get healthier because all it is is a series of do's and don'ts that's way too late in the process. I either have a healthy immune system and a healthy metabolism or I don't. There are literally solutions in the world that I did during COVID, rather than study Bitcoin in March, I was studying the healthcare system even more, which I perceive as broken, by the way, before COVID hit. But I learned, for example, that there's a non-invasive way to treat heart disease using vitamin C and lysine. It's called the Pauling Treatment Protocol. People can Google it on their own. And it's literally, by comparison to triple bypass surgery, it's non-invasive, meaning I don't have to slice my chest open, grab veins from my legs, and go through this incredibly expensive six-figure uh, process, and instead take vitamin C and lysine and reverse heart disease through, and, and Pauling explains it very clearly, and he wasn't, he was called a quack, by the way by cardiologists, which if you follow the money, you understand why he was called a quack. But when you read what he read and when you understand his theories and his reasoning for it, those people who have heart disease can reverse it using this protocol. Well, that's like, if I could shout from the rooftops, healthcare information, it's the number one killer in the United States, probably around the world, and absolutely nobody knows about it. And then again, as a lawyer, what I'm also concerned about is what I call informed consent. So my father had triple bypass surgery. Was he given this as an option? No. And that's not informed consent. So I would love to start some companies 
And I hopefully we start seeing businesses pop up that rely more on Eastern medicine and natural medicine as ways of resolving or achieving optimum health is maybe the way to put it. Um, I mean, that's exciting to hear about, but also I think you, you touched on it yourself where you said Bitcoiners and people who are looking at health differently have much in common and Bitcoiners are going to start looking at health differently. I've never learned so much about health since I joined this community. And I think there's a predisposition to doing the sort of research that you just described where you go beyond what's the standard taught stuff. And uh, you really go for the the verify, not trust sort of ethos and uh, finding out on your own how health really works. And um, no, I think there's definitely an overlap there in, in sort of how they operate. Absolutely. In fact, if you want to put it in the show notes, we can do it. But I also want to just let people know if they're curious, there's two websites I would go to. And I went there in March of 2020, one of them, which was called um, Ortho Molecular News Service. And if you just Google that, you'll see a string of articles starting in January of 2020, well before even in the United States even knew what was going on, where all these orthomolecular doctors were talking about using things like vitamin C, vitamin D, um, that they were actually uh, designated as treatment protocols in China. And again, when I would Google what's the treatment protocol in China, Google would tell me there isn't one, right? There's no, there's no treatment protocol. Whereas if you went to this website, it's like, well, hold it. Yes, there is. And so you start to understand when you follow the incentives in our healthcare system, they might just be worse than the incentives in our monetary system, if that's possible, or equally as bad. But the beautiful news is if, as Bitcoiners, if you really care about your health, there's a lot of resources out there. And I will make this offer to anybody um, get, you know, if you want to get a hold of me, I'll be happy to share what I've learned because to me, there is literally nothing more important than my health. And I've learned that from all my friends, my family, those who've had health issues. And I hope to not take it for granted because as soon as you do, that's the road to obviously having something less than optimum health. Uh, absolutely. Um, and I think Bitcoin and health are going to continue to be related to each other. Um, but I guess bouncing off of sort of what we've been talking about, I'm curious what you wish the impact of Bitcoin to be on the world is. Um, and I know you have actually had a project so, sort of related to this, so I might, you know, I'll let you talk about that. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a company that I've actually, well, there's a couple of things I'm doing. So I view food as medicine, which I think is now very becoming very common, but I also view soil as medicine. And one of the things that I did in 2021, once I went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, is I actually felt it was important as an impact investor to invest in those things I wanted to see around long-term, and that would be healthy soil. Well, that's not exactly an everyday uh, discussion. I love it that there's Bitcoiners in this space who are talking about it. It's almost unbelievable. And I was involved in an organization called Slow Money where they said, look, if you're not working on something that will not be achievable in your lifetime, you're not thinking big enough. And so I actually went to some small farmers. Two of them are in actually uh, Colorado. The other one's actually in, in North Carolina, Asheville. And I literally gave them some Bitcoin to put on their balance sheet because I see a direct link 
between those. So that's a project that I would love to see. Actually, there's a Charity Water. You're probably familiar with Charity Water. I think they have like 50 Bitcoin that they've collected to help clean water around the world. I would love to see a soil guardian faucet. I think there's an article on this in Bitcoin Magazine. Yep. I would love to see something like that started maybe by Bitcoiners so that we start funneling all these funds to soil guardians, as I call them, the small farmers. I also call these small farmers healthcare heroes because, and it's not to take away from the people working in hospitals, but those folks are actually keeping us healthier at the prevention level. The folks in the hospitals are fix me after I'm broken. That's the disease care system. And I would love to see a soil guardian nonprofit started that literally is an alternative funding mechanism so that the people who are preserving soil, embedding carbon in the soil, um, could actually have a funding source that doesn't require government money or subsidization. And what people don't understand is we can reverse climate change in record amounts of time if we had enough farmers using what are called restorative practices in order to restore our soil because you're going to embed more carbon in the soil and the benefit when you live in a state like I do, like Colorado, when you have a lot of carbon in the soil, you're also preserving and you're making yourself less at risk of um, droughts because that soil, that acreage can hold more water. So it's more resilient, just like the Bitcoin network. So I would love to do that. And another one, just so that you know, I would like to start a, a healthcare or wellness company that has all these natural remedies and you show people on the front end how to utilize natural medicine to do things all based by the way on science, how to reverse um, health issues at sort of a one-to-one -one level rather than, I mean, I still encourage people to go to their doctor, but there are so many different ways to resolve health issues and the knowledge gaps there are huge. Again, because I mean, we don't teach it. I mean, those both sound like excellent projects. Uh, I do recall your uh, Soil Guardian uh, article, and I thought that was an excellent idea. The overlap between our farmers and Bitcoiners actually seems to be quite great. And uh, I, think, I think the two, you know, sort of working they together. They go together. Exactly. They really go together. I, you know, what, what, what struck me, Casey, having been in the slow money world first and really have been a fan of farming and small farmers and restoring soil and restorative practices and resiliency in the, the soil food web, I mean, all of that was mm -hmm. how they link up so beautifully because in addition to starting these companies, thank you, Michael Saylor, I wanna make sure that we've got Bitcoin on the balance sheet because what happens is now you've just built and started a company that has got a way better chance of surviving past any other business that might be competing against us because they're dealing in the melting ice cubes of dollars rather than the the growing purchasing power of Bitcoin. Right. Not to mention that the incentives of the company are now aligned with their treasury and how they need to grow that treasury, right? Um, like you said, people are dealing with the melting ice cube of fiat. You have to change your business practices. Whereas companies, if, if you're solidified around hard money, uh, 
theoretically, you should be able to choose the best for your business rather than just the best for your pocketbooks. Right. And, and again, it's disease care system is what we have now. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of Bitcoiners understand that's as broken as the money. And there are a lot who would, and I know of people who volunteer that, hey, they want to eat, you know, much better spontaneously to your point earlier. And so they understand that in order to really be healthy, you have to have a strong metabolism and you have to have a strong immune system. So the, one of the reasons why I'm such a big fan of vitamin C, uh, if I had to choose between vitamin C and Bitcoin, I might choose vitamin C, not because Bitcoin's <laughs> horrible, but because it's, again, it's my health. I, I'd rather have my health than wealth. But the amazing thing about it is it's literally the most vital nutrient that we have. And what's interesting is Pauling found out that most people have what's called subclinical scurvy. That means that basically we are almost all of us deficient in vitamin C, not bad enough for your doctor to tell you, but bad enough to get a whole host of diseases, including COVID, because your immune system isn't where it needs to be. So the that means we can call everyone scurvy dogs now, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> you said that, I didn't. <laughs> right. Um, let's pivot, Mark. But before okay. we pivot, I want to make sure that everyone who is listening right now is going to Miami, April 6th to the 9th, Bitcoin 2022. If you're not going to be there, I'm going to be so disappointed. I want to see everyone's face. I want to meet you. I want to shake your hand. Uh, you know, let's let's make it happen. And if, I you don't, build... if you're not there, if you're not there, you're going to get subclinical scurvy. That's all. <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah. and I want to give people an additional reason to go, which we may go to anyway. So as uh, Casey, you know, I don't know if Alex, you know, um, myself, Ulrich and Mike Hobart, Ulrich Patillo and, and Mike Hobart and I uh, drafted the Declaration of Monetary Independence. And we're going to hopefully have a 20 by 30 foot rendition of this declaration that we want you to come to Miami to sign because I think it'll be a really cool 1776 vibe. And I'm, I'm hoping, as you said, Casey, we can shake a whole lot of hands and get your autograph. So, yeah, no, I mean, show up, sign the Dami. Um, it's going to be great to see everyone in Miami. Uh, it's going to be cooler than it was when we had it in June. So uh, it, it's going to be great. But Mark, when everyone is there in Miami, they're going to be looking to network. They're going to be looking to get these Bitcoiner jobs because no one wants to work in the fiat world anymore. And you have a, an excellent background in networking, talking to people, and really building these these sort of professional networks. Could you just, uh, you know, any primary advice you would give to these Bitcoiners who uh, are hopefully attending Miami with us? Absolutely. So I, you know, I've written a couple of books, both of which are about networking. And I define networking at a very practical level as putting people together for their mutual benefit, which really kind of fits in the ethos of Bitcoin period. But what I've learned since going down the rabbit hole is for all of you thinking of attending a meetup in your city, or coming to Miami for the conference, your mindset is not only putting people together for their mutual benefit, but it's also for the benefit of the Bitcoin protocol, for the benefit of the Bitcoin network. And I would suggest that each and every person who's listening to this podcast, what I had the privilege of doing is working with some of the best rainmaking 
uh, rainmakers anywhere in the professional services world. It was mostly lawyers, accountants, engineers, consultants. And what I noticed with the most effective rainmakers is that they were just naturally good at connecting people. And I love this space because you guys are so much smarter than I about a whole lot of things. But what I would say is the one gap is we don't, I don't see enough what I call peer-to-peer -peer networking like we got to do in Nashville. I got to actually visit with Alex and Chris and yourself. And that was fun, right? I mean, to me, that's more fun. And you build a different relationship that way. And what I think the younger folks think of is that Twitter is networking, which it is, but it's not peer-to-peer. I would say one of my favorite people in the Bitcoin space is Ray Youssef at Paxful because he's all about this peer-to-peer. -peer. And when you walk into a room full of people when you're at the next meetup, your mindset ought to be, okay, I'm here to meet people, but I'm also here to put people together. Who can I put Casey together with that might be to his benefit? Who can I put Alex together with that might be to his benefit. And what happens is your mindset shifts because when you walk into a room full of people, most of us are very self-conscious. When you're going into the meeting or the networking event or the conference and your mindset is, I'm there to put people together, your focus is on other people. And if your focus is also on putting people together, not only for their mutual benefit, but for the benefit of the Bitcoin protocol, all of a sudden connections are being made that I think will surprise people at how much impact that can have um, when you get face-to-face -face and when you get on phone calls, you know, and even in chat, there's some, there's some chance to do that. It's not quite the same in a chat, but I think that would be the one definition of networking because I think most view networking is what do I get? And that's 180 degrees off from the way at least I've been teaching it for 30 years. I mean, I think it's uh, what you said is an excellent perspective on really how to approach networking. As you said, it takes a little bit of that pressure off of I'm here to make connections. How do I, who do I meet? How do I meet them? How do I present myself? And as you said, it's more about the benefit of the, uh, of the network as a whole. And that's a, it's certainly a different way to think about it. And I will, I, I'll totally agree with you, Mark, that my Bitcoin journey entirely changed when I started meeting up in person with Bitcoiners. Uh, Interesting. There, there cool. Was just, it was no, uh, there's no substitute for having that in-person connection, as you said, the peer-to-peer -peer network when, I mean, Twitter is great and all, but uh, yeah, you just can't beat meeting up in person. So I, I encourage everyone to go to their meetups, go to their networking events and go to the conference because uh, it's going to be like all the Bitcoiners in one spot. Well, and I, and I want to just one more point on that because it, for those of you who are on Twitter and I have a Twitter account, but I don't really use it, right? As you know, um, I'm in the Telegram chat. I can't believe I am, but I am. <laughs> uh, and I've been enjoying it, by the way. But what I would say is until you get to either a phone call or a face-to-face -face meeting, you build a different kind of relationship. So even with contributors, I know that all of us are now focused on trying to benefit from their expertise. Um, and the more we have interactions with our contributors, our writers for Bitcoin Magazine, the better the content that we get and the stronger the relationship. 
And my second book literally, I think, is the expl explanation of why I do this. The name of the book is actually called Relationships Are Everything. And I think that's true even without Bitcoin, but I think Bitcoiners can appreciate it even more because the original ethos behind uh, the white paper was peer-to-peer. -peer. And I think we think of Twitter as peer-to-peer. -peer. I don't think of Twitter or even DMs as quite the same as phone calls, as meetings, as coming to conferences. So I would totally encourage all of you watching this to to really think in terms of adding more face-to-face -face time and or phone time with people because it builds a different kind of connection. Oh, uh, I, I agree with Mark and I definitely think everyone should do so. Mark, uh, what we're discussing could be considered a bit more of a older idea. I mean, uh, you, you are from a different generation than I and most uh, Bitcoiners. So I guess, what what's your perspective on the biggest changes of the world as a you know quote unquote boomer as someone uh, outside the average range of Bitcoiners and uh, what do you think the impact is from from that sort of perspective? Well, first of all, I have absolutely loved working with all the Bitcoiners in this space. I mean, literally, most of you guys are probably half my age, and I'm loving it, um, and I'm learning a lot from you guys, and it's definitely keeping me humble. What um you know. When I'm talking to my peers, it's a really interesting conversation. And I've kind of, I've stopped trying to convince anybody about Bitcoin. And I think this is true, whether you're, you know, sort of my peer group or you're half my age. What I find is that people are going to, when they're ready for Bitcoin, they'll get it. They're, I usually want to understand what most of the friends that I have are very successful. They don't need Bitcoin, and I don't try to convince them of it. But what I've noticed is they see the problems in our in our economy. They, see, you know, I love. There's a phrase: "We're all in the same storm. We're not all in the same boat." And I think people who are sort of, I just, we're privileged. Even even those of us in the United States who maybe are way more at risk. We're still privileged compared to a lot of the places around the world. And I think we forget that sometimes. I definitely think my peers forget that. What I love working in this space for is you guys kind of keep me motivated because it's a reminder, okay, it's about my kids. So I had the reverse problem, Casey, right? So dad, learns about Bitcoin, and then orange pills his millennial children, right? So that's just not the usual story, right, you hear. Now, they've gotten into it, and they totally, they get it. You know, one has gone down the rabbit hole further than the other, and it doesn't matter. My son, actually, who's the CPA, he's kind of working for the cantillionaires, right? So he's not going to get it. I love utilizing the conversation around what is money, hat tip to Robert Breedlove, because I think until people tell you what their understanding of money is, it's almost a joke to even talk to them about, about Bitcoin because it's just too far to travel. And, and until someone perceives a problem, they're not going to embrace the solution that's unbelievable, right? Once it is species invention, Bitcoin, they're not going to embrace it until they understand there's a problem. And I think all of us forget that. I, I'm not, that's not just me with my peers who are boomers. 
I think it's it's at every age level. And in fact, I was at a a meetup with somebody who was quite a bit younger, and she um, was said she was trying to orange pill her sister, who's a lawyer in a firm in New York City in a large firm that I happen to have done work for. And she was frustrated because her sister wasn't getting it. And I said, look, you know, don't try so hard. It's okay. Just love your sister. Don't let the fact that your sister doesn't see the brilliance of Bitcoin to be the reason why you're not connected with your sister anymore. And Definitely. she understood that. I mean, to her credit, she understood that. And I think all of us forget. I There's just a certain segment of my peers who I literally will tell them, you don't need Bitcoin. Now, they may at some point, but I always love that because psychologically that usually shifts the conversation to, well, what do you mean? Why not? Uh, yeah, I mean, right. Uh, we're, we're a bunch of fish who don't know what water is, right? Exactly. Uh, fish discover water last. <laughs> exactly. And right. I, I guess we can you know, maybe consider ourselves lucky or maybe just predisposed to f discovering what this water is that is Bitcoin. Um, but yeah. Well, and Casey, I think, you know, you, anyone that's sort of your age group or younger, you literally do not know what it's like to earn interest in a savings account. So that's we true. have, we as a culture and really around the world have completely decimated the ability to save money until there was Bitcoin. So the younger folks get that and they embrace it sometimes with, you know, both, they jump in with both feet. And I don't think folks at sort of my peer group, they knew what it was like and they've kind of gotten, I don't know the right word is, complacent. And there's a lot of people doing all they can to just get through the day. But I think your younger generation, the younger generation in particular, you now have a savings technology. Oh my God, I would have loved to have that savings technology when I was in my 20s and 30s because you know, you're not compounding at 6%, you're compounding it on the low end, 40 or 50% if it slows down and a hundred and some odd percent if it keeps up the pace it's been going, um, definitely, which is definitely. cool. I'm, I mean, I'm excited for it. I'm, I feel lucky, but um, bouncing off of what you were just describing, I'm curious the difference between how you would describe uh, Bitcoin to someone who's younger versus how you would describe it to someone who you consider a peer or uh, you know, more your age. Yeah, I mean, usually with the younger set, and I actually wrote, this actually triggered my first article that got published in Bitcoin Magazine. It was called An Open Letter to My Children. And I literally sent it to them before I submitted it to the magazine. And I tried to explain to them that, look, you work, you get paid, and you get paid in a money that's called the US dollar, which is the dirtiest clean shirt of all the currencies in the world. But it, nonetheless, it's doing this. And there's another asset, digital asset, that's doing this. You might want to think about how you store your energy. Because you guys have lived in a zero interest rate environment with all kinds of dysfunction that's so obvious, particularly post-COVID, you know, you could see state overreach at so many levels. We don't have time to go into it, nor does it matter. But it actually gives them something or a technology that they're native to, and that actually, I would think, gives them a lot of hope. My peer group, I actually usually say, hey, get your phone out and download a Moon Wallet. So I've started to do this lately, and I literally was doing this with people. I know one of them was a billionaire I did this with, uh, and just said, hey, 
you know, can you download this wallet? And I, he had downloaded the Moon Wallet, M-U-U-N. Um, and he, once he downloaded it and put it in his four-digit code, I sent him some Bitcoin in the space of obviously seconds. And once people have that experience, even at my age group, it cuts out. I don't need to understand, you know, the three phases of money that it starts out as a store of value, then it becomes a medium exchange, and and then it's a unit of account. They their doors are blown off when they see that. And when that happens, there's no trying to convince them. I've now done this. Literally, it has been this is back to the whole peer-to-peer question from earlier. It's my hypothesis that if five million Bitcoiners took it upon themselves to get as many people off zero as possible using whatever technology they wanted. This is meant to be a moon wallet. And they did it, let's say 5 million people did it with 20 people a year. That's 100 million people a year that we're adding to the network. Now, some of them aren't going to know what they have, right? They're going to have a tiger by the tail and they don't understand it. But I think more often than not, what I've noticed is people get curious. So what I tend to do in both age groups, but different things make them curious is how do I ask questions that get them curious or how do I demonstrate how easy it is to use? And after I've had them download that moon wallet and I've sent them some money, sometimes I'll have them send it back to me in a lightning um, on the lightning sides because it's cheaper and they've literally received and sent. But I'll say there was no government that got in the middle of it. There was no bank that got in the middle of it. They could ban Bitcoin tomorrow and you and I can still transact in this. And that starts to get the wheels turning for the people that I'm doing this with, which is admittedly, admittedly, um, it's going to work better probably with the my age group, maybe than with your age group. I think your age group is predisposed to see the brilliance of it. Yeah, I think there's uh, like with my age group, it's like the experience is so apparent that um, we just need to be described what Bitcoin really is and what problem it fixes. And we understand almost intuitively, whereas, as you said, with with your group, it's it's more like you need to show them uh, the real use case of it and all that. I am curious, uh, you know, sort of rounding out our uh, our questions here, what you're most looking forward to in the Bitcoin space. And uh, I guess to add on to it, uh, a price prediction for 10 years from now. Right. Um, You know, I I really, there's so many things I have encouragement around, some of which we've talked about. I think if we start to see soil health improve, if we start to see more countries start to adopt Bitcoin, I haven't mentioned this already, and I didn't. I think I had read about the Kardashev scale, but I didn't know what it was. I think Bitcoin mining is the most beat up uh, sector for something that is likely to take the human race to one on the Kardashev scale, which, as you know, Casey, means the civilization knows how to harvest all of the energy from its own planet and its sun, which we're not even at a one yet. So I see in the future that happening. I see, we already see races by mayors. So it's really interesting to watch how mayors are almost competing against each other to say who's going to accept payment in Bitcoin or who's going to put it on their balance sheet. Rio's mayor just did that. I am pretty confident that that's going to keep happening at the local level. I hope it improves our food supply. I hope it improves our soil over time. Because again, Bitcoiners can appreciate 
hey, if I'm going to be fully responsible for my money, maybe I need to be fully responsible for my health. That goes back to air, water, soil, food, and ecosystems, including energy. Um, I also think more nation states are going to jump in because we are treating when the Fed prints more money, it disproportionately hurts the most vulnerable countries and people on the planet. And the other thing that I knew before I got into Bitcoin, I didn't know it was our monetary policy that was causing it, is that we are a consuming nation. And when you have monetary policy that keeps trying to pull from the future to spend in the present to paper over and put a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound, that's gonna, that actually is the worst thing for our climate. And almost nobody in our government talks that way. It's like, it's completely over their head. So I am hoping even by the end of this year, if there's an honest examination, no guarantee there, I think more leaders from around the world are going to start to link our climate effect to our monetary policy. They're clear as, as can be. I don't think it's even, if you really understand, I don't think it's even in, 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 in dispute. Uh, as for price predictions, I think you and I have had this conversation. Uh, you know, one Bitcoin is still going to be worth 100 million Satoshis at the end of 2022. I, I really don't tend to do a good job of predicting that for two reasons. One, there are a lot of people in my age group, back to your earlier question, who see Bitcoin as an investment. And that's fine. That's not wrong, but it's incomplete. And the more we talk about price, the more we, we create that perception. The other thing, and this is, again, how I sometimes talk to, again, more people in my, my peer group. I will usually tell them, gee, did you know that Bitcoin reached dollar parity in February of 2011, and it's now worth 42,000 times more than it was 10 or 11 years ago? And that's still talking about the price, but it's talking about the purchasing power. And I think we, I hope Bitcoin and Lightning Network become invisible sooner rather than later so that it's just a way to send value over the internet and nobody thinks about it that much. I also think that long-term, there will come a day where we're pricing oil and other commodities in Bitcoin. I mean, I what's that? The uh, the energy to energy sort of comparison, yes. right? Well, I mean, it's already, uh, I had this argument with Mark, I'm sorry, with Eric Yates, one of our contributors, who's also written a great book called The Seventh Property, about Bitcoin technically, he says, is not backed by energy. For the average person, they're not going to get that. He's right. But Bitcoin is fueled by energy. It converts electrical energy into hashes, into energy that you can store forever. Thank you, Michael Saylor. And you can send around the world in seconds. And once more of every segment of our society starts to get that, we're going to see Bitcoin everywhere and Lightning Network everywhere, but it'll probably be more invisible. And I actually hope we get to Satoshi standard rather than Bitcoin standard, because in some respects, 
I'm not sure whether Bitcoin standard will happen or not. Back to price prediction. I think it's more likely that we'll get to Satoshi's as being our standard. I sure hope you're right. I have way more Satoshi's than I have Bitcoin. Uh, so it would really be helpful for me if we could use that as our standard rather than Bitcoin. Yep. Um, but no, I, I mean, uh, there's there's so much to look forward to. As you said, that goes beyond just Bitcoin. There's um, the impact on health, the impact on the environment, and uh, the realigning of the incentives of all these power structures that are sort of creating the problems that we experience today. Um, I mean, just so much Absolutely. to look forward to. And one other thought I have on price that, I don't haven't seen in podcasts very much. Um, Greg Foss does a great job of sort of calculating that Bitcoin is like a CDS on sovereign debt, which I think is a brilliant insight. And he literally comes up with the value of, if you will, the asset, the digital asset. But and I think we all know that there's the digital asset, Bitcoin, small b, but then there's the network, capital B, and there's the protocol, which is actually separate as well. Those are the rails that the asset runs on. I personally feel that I can value those rails at whatever number I want. And in my estimation, just to have some, you know, a number, that's worth at least $400,000 for each coin that travels on those rails because it's never been hacked. It's run by a single purpose set of computers that is so decentralized that you can't shut it down. And until somebody figures out how to hack SHA-256, it's way safer than the SWIFT system, which is where U.S. dollars run across those rails. It's like comparing a rickety old fence to a modern bridge. You know, the Bitcoin network, those rails, that's why I put it at $400,000 a coin alone. The coin's worth whatever's the coin's worth. The network I don't think we're valuing it yet fairly. And again, it's still early days. So um, that actually enters into my thinking in terms of how to value it. I've, I've always been, um, I've always liked the idea of sort of valuing Bitcoin, the asset in terms of what you think the value of the rails are, um, because the protocol itself and the network itself is I mean, I don't know, people disagree with that certain perspective sometimes, but I think its usage is really what, uh, the usage of the network is really what gives it its value. So um, to sort of connect the two right there is, is I think, a great way to look at it. Um, 400000 certainly a great situation to be looking at, hopefully. Um, Mark, I mean, we could go on for days about so many different subjects, uh, but it's been absolutely excellent to have you on here. And uh, thank you for joining us. And hopefully we, get, hopefully we get to meet everyone in Bitcoin 2022 in Miami. Uh Absolutely. Come and see us and come sign the declaration. We'd love to, we'd love to meet up with you. Thank you. Appreciate your, uh, your time, Casey. Yeah, thanks again, Mark. Uh, and all you do for Bitcoin, keep it up. All you guys. <laughs>